Welcome to the Health Design Podcast. Here's your host, Moyes Jiwa. My guest on the podcast today, Karen Reynas, was a model mother. She did everything possible to give her children a happy childhood. Then one day she received news that changed her view of health and mental health in particular forever and led her on the road to advocacy. Here to tell her story is Karen Reynas. Karen, I'm delighted that you took the time to speak with me today. I'm so pleased that we made the connection. I want to go back to the roots of your role as a patient advocate, back to the time your children were very young. Talk to me about what family life was like in those early years. Thank you so much for the invitation. It's great to be here with you today. And I love having the opportunity to talk about something that I'm deeply passionate about. So thank you for that. Super high achieving academic kid in high school. Ended up getting into the University of Texas here in Austin and was the first in my family to go off to a four-year university. Had this really amazing experience of just all kinds of discovery. and. In that final semester of college, where I was graduating early, I got a call from my mother, and she was suicidal. And so I dropped everything, got out of school, went down to, I grew up in Corpus Christi, Texas, so along the coast of Texas, and went down there to help her out. So I have three siblings who are 14. 12, and 10 years younger than I am. So I had helped raise them. And so at that point, they're still little. They're like nine, seven, and five. And so I went down there to help out. And so anyway, I, but at some point I was able to get everything back together to get her into a place where she was stable again and got married to a wonderful man. And we spent about the first five years of our marriage just having fun and traveling and working. And and then we made that bold leap of faith to go ahead and start a family. And it has been the greatest treasure of my life, right, to be a mom. And it was funny because actually having helped raise those three siblings, there were many times when I would say, I'm never having kids because I've already raised three. But you get to that point in your life and you meet somebody special. And it's like, yeah, okay, I do want to do this. And so that's when Sarah was born and our first daughter. So I have three and I just, you know, knew at that time that I, again, was going to be a completely different kind of mom and created a whole different kind of experience for my kids in at home. I was fortunate enough. I hadn't anticipated that it was what I was going to do, but we made the decision that I was going to stay home for a while. And what turned into, Hey, maybe I'll do this for six months ended up being nine years that I was a stay at home mom. So I was that mom that was the PTA mom who, you know, I had all of these themed parties that I hosted for my daughters and I was really into ritual and tradition. And so it was what I hadn't grown up with. So I knew I really craved it. So, you know, we sat at the table and had I often lit candles and we'd have placemats. My daughter likes to tell the story of we had some friends over one time and 
the little boy was sitting next to my daughter and he leans over and he says, whose birthday is it? <laughs> and she's like, it's nobody's birthday. He's like, well, what's the candle for? Those were the special things that I really wanted was. And so that's what my daughters grew up with, with this amazing experience. And so in many respects, when I look back on that time, I realized that part of what I was doing without not consciously, but I think subconsciously what I was doing was sort of creating this bubble of security over my family, right? Like no harm will come here because I'm doing all the right things. And that was the childhood that my kids had. And like I said, I was home for all those years. It came as quite a blow to me then when just 11 years ago, when my daughter was a freshman in college, so she was 18, you know, we found ourselves in a situation where we had almost lost her to suicide. But quite frankly, and if you ask me, like, what's the root of all of this? What I know is that there were things that we saw, but we were too afraid to really address and talk about. We didn't talk about mental health in my family, in spite of the fact that when Sarah was a baby was around the time that I came to this realization that, oh, (laughs) this is why my mom behaves the way she does. And so it's not like I didn't recognize that. But again, I'd built this bubble over my family, right? If you do all the right things and you raise your kids in a certain way, well, nothing bad's going to happen. And they're certainly not going to face mental health issues because that only, right, in the culture we know, that's a sign of weakness and that's like failure. That's, That's not a health issue. So I was stunned and obviously shaken. You know, I often tell the story of just like, we brought her home after just three days in the hospital. And I knew nothing. Like, it wasn't like anybody said, hey, here's some resources where you can get some additional help, or here's some support groups you ought to look into, or here's some additional, or, you know, there, it was nothing. It was like coming home with a brand new baby where they don't really tell you, well, even then they tell you a little bit, right? But I had nothing. And so we brought her home and began that journey of the unknown. And, and we did it alone because one of the things that we know about the culture as well is that if I brought my daughter home because she had ended up in a diabetic coma, it would have been a total different experience, right? We respond to health issues in such a different way when they are quote unquote physical health issues. And I often say, like, I I often tell that story and say, I want to be clear, like, here were these amazing people in my life who had stepped up 17 months before my mother actually had developed glioblastoma, a terminal brain tumor, 17 months before Sarah's crisis. And I just remember, I have fond memories of that time. For one thing, my mother and I were able to reconcile. But then the other was we were just flooded with so much love and support from our community. We had meals coming. People were helping us with our kids, like all the things that you expect that happens when a health crisis happens in your family. But 17 months later, when I brought Sarah home, it was a completely different experience. And I want to be clear, same wonderful friends. That didn't change. The only thing that really changed was diagnosis. And that was on both ends. Like I take full responsibility that I am pretty sure that when my mother was diagnosed with a terminal brain tumor, that I probably posted something on Facebook. 
And that's how the flood of people knew what was going on in our lives. And I didn't share that openly on social media or anywhere. Like I told a few, a handful of people about what was going on. And even then there was sort of this hush of like, we're not going to talk about it though. And so, so we navigated those early days very much alone, like many families do when they're facing a mental health crisis. And I did what I, what I've been doing for years as a mom, which is like, okay, something comes up. Let me solve this. Let me figure this out. So I started just doing a bunch of research. You know, I went online and I read things. I, she had been diagnosed with major depression, anxiety, and an eating disorder. And so I just read everything that I could. And fortunately, the one thing that I discovered that no one had mentioned to me was NAMI. So in the United States, the National Alliance on Mental Illness, it is the largest grassroots organization in the country dealing with mental health issues. They provide all kinds of free classes and support groups for families and individuals living with mental illness. And so I found them. And it just so happens that when I came across them, it was just a few weeks before they were going to launch one of their 12-week classes for family members. That class is now eight weeks long, but at that time, it was a 12-week class. You go once a week, two and a half hours. And I remember sharing this with my husband, who's a pretty high introvert and much, much more quiet about such things than I am. And so I said, I found this class. Do you want to come with me? And he said, nope. I sure don't. I don't want to sit in a room with a bunch of other people and talk about this. But if you want to, I fully support that. And I will take care of the kids. Like, don't worry on those nights. I'll take care of everything. You are listening to the Health Design Podcast with your host, Moyes Jiwa. I started going to the class and I still remember it was Tuesday nights. And so... For 12 weeks on Tuesday nights, I'd go to this class and they would give you this binder and every week you'd insert that week's information and we covered everything, diagnosis, the various treatments, medication. So a lot of the sort of foundational things of understanding mental health issues, but then also they had sessions on communication skills, problem solving, just like really concrete things that you could use. It was so funny as to remember After the communication class, I remember sharing with my daughter what I'd learned. Even though she was 18 and a legal adult, I was treating her like a child a lot of times, not really asking her sometimes what she thought about things. That session really helped me to understand that I needed to engage her in her treatment and in her recovery, and I needed to treat her like the adult that she was, and that her recovery was going to be a lot more successful if I did. So I remember sharing all that with her and, you know, they use eye language, you know, all the typical communication, like things that I knew, but things that I needed to hear in regards to this particular health issue that we were dealing with. So anyway, a few weeks later, I remember we're having a conversation and I can't remember what we were talking about. I'm sure I think it was about medication. And she looked at me and she says, huh, I see you're practicing what you learned. (laughs) And I said, what do you mean? And she's like, I just noticed that you're using a lot of eye language and you're asking me what I think. And so, so in that respect, I often say that class alone was not what led to my daughter's recovery, but it played such a huge part. I often say that while I would never wish that kind of crisis on any family, it was transformative for us. 
And I think part of it is I still remember thinking to myself, we are in a situation in which I feel like we have no control. There are so many things that I have no control over. But the one thing that we get to control is what we do with this. And we get to choose. Are we going to choose to make this something that makes us stronger and better as a family, as individuals, and makes us healthier? Or are we going to choose to let it completely wreck us? Because I knew it could. And in the midst of her recovery, my husband and I discovered that we needed to go to our own <laughs> counseling, both as individuals as in a couple. Because like any major health crises, it like all kinds of things bubbled up, things that we hadn't really dealt with and talked about. So again, it was transformative for us as a family. And it helped us to understand, I think, some really key important things. One was that mental health is health. And I think that was so incredibly important because so often we don't treat it like a health issue. We, again, treat it like a personality issue, a character flaw. Or in my case, I didn't talk about this earlier, but I had so much shame. I mean, part of the reason that I didn't talk about her mental health crisis was because I felt like I had failed as a parent. She ended up in this health crisis because I had failed as a parent. And I never would have had those kinds of thoughts if she'd ended up in a diabetic coma or if she developed cancer or any other health issue. Because, again, as we see it as a personality, behavioral, I don't even like the language. You know, some of the language that we use around mental health is behavioral health. And I often say, like, well, what does that mean then? That means that you just need to behave? <laughs> you know, that that's what fixes it. And so um, I recognize that at least in here in the United States, we use that language to sort of umbrella mental health and substance use disorders. But this is my great hope is that someday we will talk about brain health and that that will be the big umbrella. Because I think when we talk about brain health, what we understand is the brain is in our body. It is physical. Mental health is health. That's not just a tagline or a slogan. It's the truth. And I think for us, that was part of the transformative piece is helping us to understand that we didn't need to be ashamed. There was nothing for us to be ashamed about. This was a health issue. There were things that we missed. But I love what Nami taught me, which is you can't know what no one's ever told you. Because they recognize that families come into those spaces and so do individuals feeling a lot of that guilt and shame and blame, which is all toxic stuff, which is not productive for a healthy recovery. And they help you to understand that it's like, how, how could you have known if no one ever taught you that? So I love the concept, right, which is like, let us teach you what you need to know. And hopefully there won't be another crisis along the way. But if there is... We're equipping you with everything that you need to be successful in navigating that crisis. So we had this amazing experience. It took her recovery was a long recovery. I would say we went through typically like many families do through a period of time in which we were trying various kinds of treatments and medication protocols and nothing was really quite working. And I had a daughter that would still look at me on some days and say, I don't know if I can live my whole life like this. And I knew what she was saying to me, and she knew what she was telling me. And it just took time. And eventually, we found the right combination 
of treatment and medication. And, you know, that's the other thing is that treatment for brain health issues are so much more complex. There's so much we don't know about the brain. So it's not as easy as there, there's no good diagnostic. You know, we still use the DSM, you know, to figure this out. And so it took a while and we were persistent in that. And I think there were many days when she wanted to lose hope. And I'll be honest, there were days when I felt a little hopeless, but I never let her know. I would say to her, I have enough hope for both of us. I hold it. You don't have to have any because I have enough. But I had days that I was also scared. And we got there. I still remember the day, actually, when it happened, that I knew we were on the right track. I was in another part of the house, and I heard her laugh. And it's not like she hadn't laughed in the previous nine months. I heard a real laugh. I heard this belly laugh. It was the sound of music to me. Like, it was just music to my ears to hear that because it's like, oh, my gosh, there she is. And so, you know, it took a long time, but we got to that place. And along the way, we did become a stronger and better and healthier family because of it. And I have this background in doing nonprofit work, but I had worked primarily around poverty and Housing, supportive housing for women and children had been the work I had been doing. And never would I have imagined that I would have landed as the first executive director for this NAMI affiliate that hosted the classes that I mentioned. And that's not what I would have imagined for myself. But the opportunity presented itself. In fact, I often tell the story. I was posting a job for the nonprofit where I was working. And it was one of those job sites where the most recent post is up at the top. So NAMI Austin, which was the affiliate at that time, had just posted a position for a program manager. And I knew because the board president had been my teacher that they hadn't had any professional staff previously. It had been just part-time admin folks. So I saw that and I just thought, oh, wow, that's so awesome. So I sent her an email and said, hey, I just want to congratulate you guys. Like, that's so awesome that you're hiring somebody. She goes, yeah, if you know of anybody, like we're just looking for the right person because we're ready to grow. And I was like, okay, well, I'll keep that in mind. (laughs) And I just started thinking about it. And I remember saying to my husband, wow, like this job's available. And he's like, why are you telling me this? And I said, I don't know. He says, do you want that job? I mean, are you interested? And I said, no, I don't think so. And so I brought it up, I don't know, a couple of weeks later, and he's like, you brought that job up again. Like, are you thinking about it? So ultimately, he really challenged me to apply and just see what would happen. I had a lot of doubts and concerns. He's like, you're never going to know if you don't ask. And we had this amazing initial conversation, and I just knew that's where I needed to be. And so in 2013, I, I joined them as their first program manager, and then six months later became their first executive director. The Health Design Podcast is hosted by the Journal of Health Design, an alliance with unfixed media and metal health. And it has just been like this amazing, it was an amazing journey. And it gave me the opportunity to do that whole phrasing around, you can't know what no one's ever taught you. That it was two things. One, this deep commitment to continuing to educate and support families and individuals who were navigating their own mental health challenges. But then also about a year or two into it, I realized, oh my gosh, we have so much work to do in the community. 
because what I recognize is that we were equipping people with all kinds of great knowledge and a sense of confidence about being advocates for themselves, but then they were going to work and school and their places of worship and their neighborhoods, and people didn't know. They weren't getting it. So they weren't getting the kind of response that they hoped for, many of them, were discovering that they'd go to work and people at work were like, oh, not sure quite how to respond to that. So around that time, we made a commitment to not only that kind of work in the community, but also expanding and doing programming for schools and training law enforcement officers and training faith community leaders and just all, you know, we started really branching out so that really what we started talking about is we need to change the mental health conversation. We just need to talk about mental health, address it in a different kind of way. And that just got me excited every single day. I was excited to get up and do the work because inevitably I felt like I was still continuing to just encounter families who were still navigating the same kinds of challenges. We did a lot of policy work as well, a lot of advocacy work. And I think that's the other place where there's so much work to be done is really changing policy. The system, both the healthcare system and the justice system, don't treat mental health like a health issue. And so there's a lot of work to be done there. What you're describing is the future of healthcare. You're describing the situation where we as patients find a way to support others like us who have this who are walking in the same shoes and are on the same journey and there are many components to this first of all this is a long-term illness secondly as you say the future is unknown sometimes the diagnosis is difficult the treatment can be difficult and there is this sense that you don't want to talk about it outside of the family because of what you describe, the shame and the blame that goes with having any illness, but particularly a mental illness, as you've described it there. So I want to talk a little bit about the status quo, and that was your experience with healthcare generally. So here you were. Were your doctors, for example, aware of the context in which you were presenting this illness because you've described it there beautifully you've described your early years as a daughter of a mom who had an illness and then your efforts not to replicate that experience for your family and then it appearing in your family were they aware of this and were they able to connect the dots as it were no i don't think anyone i mean i don't recall any sort of really unpacking of that and it's interesting that you mentioned that piece as well, because I think when I look back, I can remember having so many questions. And I can remember that we met with a social worker, a caseworker, but I just felt like there were boxes being checked. There was a sense that I had that for them, because she was an adult, that here was this family that was super supportive. Like we were showing up for every opportunity to visit. I remember my daughter saying to me, my roommate is just shocked by the fact that you guys show up for every visit because no one comes to visit her and that you all show up. <laughs> and so for us, this notion of 
how do you engage the whole family support system? And, and I use the word family, but let me be clear, like that, what that family looks like can be any shape or form. And sometimes it's friends, but whatever that support system is so that you're engaging them in that recovery. Cause I often say, thank goodness my daughter had the support system she had in her family and a fierce mama bear <laughs> mom who was going to keep asking questions and knocking on doors and doing research, because I'm going to be honest with you. And I don't say this lightly. My daughter would not be alive today. If she had had to step out of that hospital without the level of support that she had in her family, because there's just no way she was not at a point where she could make, she couldn't make phone calls. I had to arrange every visit for the therapist, for the psychiatrist, look into group therapy. There was no, I often used to tell her because she would feel guilty about it. And I'd say, honey, I need you to recognize that the crisis you experienced was the same as though you were hit by a Mack truck and broke every single bone in your body. You are healing and the healing is not a sprint. It is this marathon. Like it's, it's going to take a while for all of this to for you to heal. So, but so often, and I think this is true in other, I mean, I just think of situations where we don't engage the person as an advocate for the self, nor give them an opportunity to have other people advocate with them and be there to ask the questions. So I did love that about NAMI. I still remember one of the classes that is all on medication. So I still remember, I would go to all of my daughter's psychiatric visits with her and I would give her an opportunity to have one-on-one -on -one time and then they'd bring me in. And I still remember one time it looked like there was going to be another medication change and we had just had that class. And I literally opened up my binder, pulled out that section and took it with me. Knowledge and information is so powerful. And here was the thing. It wasn't like suddenly I knew everything there was to know about psychiatric medication. But I had information in front of me so that as she said, this is what we're thinking. I think we need to make a switch to this. I could look it up in that information that I had and look at the information and ask questions. Well, what about this? I know that there's a concern and how will I know this and what should I look for? And so we don't often invite folks into those conversations. And to your point, I think that is the future of healthcare. It absolutely is. And I think the reality is that if we can engage people in that way, honestly, there's such cost savings in it. My daughter didn't experience another crisis largely because we were well-informed. To be honest with you, one of the things that we know about brain health, and that includes, I'm talking about mental health and substance use disorders, is that often the trajectory of recovery sometimes can involve a setback, right? We know that that can happen, even when people are doing all the right things. And so that was the case for my daughter. About five years into her recovery, where she'd been doing so well, suddenly she found herself in this place where she's calling me. At this point, she's living in Oregon. And she says, Mom, I'm scared. She's starting to have suicidal thoughts again. All of this stuff happened. Long story short is, again, because we were so well-informed, <laughs> like we knew exactly what to do. 
And we were able to prevent a crisis because of that. So talk about the cost savings in so many different ways. You know, and I think it's interesting. Are you familiar at all with first episode psychosis? First episode psychosis often happens usually in young adults is when we'll see that happen. There's been a lot of research done in that particular area. And so, in fact, I sat at a NAMI conference when they were sharing some of the early research around this. And I remember listening to the presenters and tearing up as I listened to them talk about first episode psychosis and the research they had done in which what they had discovered is the best form of treatment was coordinated specialty care. And I'm listening to that. And the reason that I started to cry about this was I sat there and I thought, duh, (laughs) how sad is this that we have to have research to show the efficacy (laughs) of treating people from a person-centered perspective in which it's not just one, right? It's the psychiatric, it's the doctor, the psychiatrist, and it's a social worker, and it's the family, and it's a peer. It is this team of people, and it is centered on the person. What are their goals? What do they want to make happen in their lives? And how that changes the trajectory. And the other beauty of first episode psychosis, it's let's treat this the first time that it happens in this way. Because one of the things that we know about psychosis is the great damage that happens when so many people who experience psychosis and they don't catch it and they don't treat it. And then the next episode happens. I can't tell you how many families that I worked with in the last eight and a half years who had family members who'd had several episodes of psychosis. And it is nearly impossible to recover from that kind of damage. Coordinated specialty care ought to be just the way we approach care of all kinds. You go to conferences and you hear the same thing being said time and time again, and it's like they've rediscovered the wheel each time. And they go, you know, oh, look, it's all about family. It's all about support. It doesn't happen. Why do you think that the system doesn't allow this to just evolve the way it should have done decades ago? That's a great question. And I think part of it is that the healthcare system becomes more educated and more, the technology is more developed. It's sort of like, well, you won't understand. It's too complicated. And I think in that respect, we've created this barrier. I want to talk a little bit about society generally, but also family, friends, and our partners in understanding that this is how healthcare is evolving. In a sense that you are in the middle of a crisis and even you felt that you didn't want this going outside your immediate family, your immediate circle of friends, understandably so. And yet, There was the scope for support, had it been available to you. And in fact, you did find it in the end. You found it in NAMI, which effectively became your family, as it were, your broader family. How do you think things have changed since the diagnosis was made and and in your time with NAMI and, and understanding what's going on? Do you think society is much more open and willing to espouse a world where healthcare is our business. It's not 
somebody in a white coat's business. It's our, all of our business. And support is all of our business. I would never have wished some of the collective trauma and grief upon all of us that we've experienced in the last two years. <laughs> it's been a rough time for everyone. But I do think that one of the gifts of that time has been, or at least I see it, I, I think a lot of people have moved into this place of recognizing, at least I'm thinking primarily around mental health, recognizing seeing it as the health issue that it is, recognizing its universality. One of the things that I used to talk about all the time was the fact that, you know, the numbers were one in five. We just didn't recognize it because we never talked about it. But I do see that people are talking about it more and more and that there's a shift happening, at least within mental health. And I think that you're starting to see it in just all kinds of places where in the workplace, for instance, you're seeing more conversations around mental health than ever before because you just had to. You have to at this place in time. We have to address it. The Journal of Health Design, fostering collaboration, amplifying the voice of health advocates, growing a network to improve outcomes in healthcare. know if it's still universal enough that people feel confident about being advocates for themselves in those health settings. Um, but I think we're moving in that direction. And I think one of the things that we can strive to do, and I often say this to people around mental health, but I think it's in other ways as well. We have to, I remind people all the time that it's like, you know, we, why is it that we treat healthcare differently than we treat restaurants? In the sense that if I go to a restaurant and I get lousy service or I don't like the food, I don't go back because it's a choice I, I make. Um, now, I feel like I'm speaking from a little place of a, a, a bit of a place of privilege when I say all this, because not everyone has the luxury of saying, I'm going to choose something different. Sometimes people are confined by their insurance or other situations. When you talk about people living in rural communities, they don't have as many options, for instance. Um, so I do recognize that I'm speaking from a place of someone who is living in Austin, Texas, in which there are a plethora of choices for many of these things. But I tell people, you know, you get to choose if you don't feel like you're connecting or that you're not being heard. I often say that. I've said that to my daughters if they've, as they've become adults and chosen physicians. You can look around and choose someone else. You might have to persuade people of a certain generation, but I don't think many millennials would argue with what you're saying. They don't accept, but thankfully, they do not accept bad service. They will not be patronized. They will not be told what they can and cannot do without having the choice of deciding for themselves. I think that's where we may well see the major shift within the next five to ten years because millennials won't accept it. Yep, yep. No, they are definitely leading the way because to your point, it's hard moving out of that space when part of what you grew up with was that, right? I mean, that's the culture. I still remember the my mother telling me the story of my grand grandparents were 30 years apart. And so she had wanted to, to seek 
birth control. And so we're, we're talking about the 60s. And her doctor told her no, that he would not give her access to birth control. And so I have an uncle who is nine months older than I am. So my mother tells a story that for a brief period of time, the two of them were pregnant at the same time. And so it was really funny because I, when I, uh, I know when my husband first met me and I said something about with my uncle, he's, and he had all these older uncles and it's like, no, my uncle, like I grew up with him. <laughs> but you know, when I hear stories of that, can you just imagine? And so, but that's, that was what my mother understood as well as a nurse. She was a nurse. So she understood, oh, like you hold certain people to, you know, you have to treat doctors a certain way, right? And they're the, they know the answers. And so, so yeah, I think you're right. I think that's part of what is really helping to shift all of this is I think that you've got millennials coming in. I think you've got a whole new generation of young people who are going through medical school and, and becoming nurse practitioners and physicians assistants who are, who are coming in with a whole new approach to healthcare. And I think it's exciting. Karen Reynos, thank you for the gift that you're sharing with us, the gift of your experience. Thank you for your honesty. Thank you for your optimism. And thank you above all for the care for all that you come into contact with, not just your family. Thank you. You're welcome. Thank you. The Health Design Podcast, serving patient and physician advocates. Visit us at journalofhealthdesign.com.